G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz with episode 178 of the Outback Mine podcast. Appreciate you joining in once again. Now, talking about the brain today with a leading brain surgeon, neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. Alex Kaufman from, originally from Hobart or Oosmore, uh, more specifically in Tasmania, a little country town down there. Alex has got an amazing story uh, coming off a farm, sort of going to a, an average school and basically deciding he wanted to be a brain surgeon, moving through, now being one of the best brain surgeons in Australia. We're going to learn about the brain in its essence from the inside out what it actually is and uh, what we can actually do to keep it healthy. Um, you know, Alex has worked on a lot of people's uh, heads, noggins over the years and uh, yeah, I'm certainly going to um, pick his brain and I'm sure he's going to pick mine with regards to the way. Um, the way uh, can actually work more optimally for us rather than sort of against us, you know, leading us into anxiety, depression, all those sorts of things. But um, to get an inside uh, knowledge into the brain is pretty key. So I'm really grateful to have him on for a chat. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation because it gives us some uh, some pretty good info that we wouldn't really be able to access um, from someone at this level. So. I'm sure you're going to enjoy the chat and really appreciate your feedback. Um, just want to make a special mention to The Real Shift to support the podcast. If you've got something in your life you want to change, some habits, or there's something you want to try and achieve or improve, they've got a nine-week deep dive program, uh, which is awesome and really, really easy to uh, participate in. Um, so Mick and Amy Stu run this program. There's another one starting next month. Uh, it's nine weeks, pretty affordable, around $1,000. Uh, if you mention the Outback Mind podcast, you get a discount. Uh, so if you jump on to the website, therealshift.com, go to realshift.com forward slash deep dive, you will see it. Uh, just mention the Outback Mind if you like to look at the program and, and please take it on because uh, I know what it's like if you're stuck in a, in, a, in a habit or a poor lifestyle behavior to be able to move it on yourself is tricky, but the, these guys can help you, I think. Um, it's a great investment uh, for yourself, but also everyone else around you because of the results and so forth that you uh, you get into living a healthier, happier life. So please uh, check them out, help them out. All right, appreciate your feedback with this podcast uh, with Alex and I to support app at mind.com.au. G'day, Alex. G'day, Aaron. Uh, how are you, mates? Very well, very well. Grateful to have you here. Um, geez, I... I know of the place that you're from, uh, which is a place called Ooze in Tasmania. I've got fond memories of Ooze, and uh, I know you spent a lot of your youth in uh, in that little town on a farm. And uh, it'd be great to sort of, you know, find out why a boy from a little place like Ooze ended up trying to be uh, uh, or wanting to become a brain surgeon. So um, we'll follow that journey along and see where that takes us, mate. Um, tell us. Uh, you were living in Ooze as a young fella up until grade six. What were some of the memories that you had as a young fella there? Yeah, Aaron, and firstly, thanks for having me on, mate. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity. It's uh, really fantastic what you're doing, and it's uh, uh, a privilege to uh, make a small contribution to it. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, yeah, so uh, I actually uh, lived in a place called Osterley, which is uh, another 20 kilometres uh, further inland from Ooze itself. But uh, it's a tiny little town, and we had a farm there, uh, which mum's side of the family had owned since convict days. She was the first fleeter. 
And uh, then we went to school in Ooze, and I was born in Ooze, and I uh, I was at school there to about uh, grade six. And then um, my dad decided uh, he didn't want me to be a tractor driver or a boiler maker or something, and uh, decided to move us down to Hobart for um, better education. So. <laughs> We uh, plonked down in uh, in Hobart uh, for year seven onwards, and I went to another school there called Calvin. Mm. And at that stage, I wanted to be an architect. I, I liked drawing, I liked maths, so that seemed like a natural sort of thing for me to do. And then in year 10 uh, was my uh, pivotal moment. Uh, a very good friend of mine at school uh, sort of announced to the class uh, that he wanted to be a doctor. And uh, look, I'm quite a naturally a competitive type of person <laughs> and I thought to myself well if you're going to be a doctor I'm going to match you and raise you one and I'll become a uh, become an eye surgeon and um and so I started telling everyone I wanted to be an eye surgeon <laughs> and then this person gave me a book when they heard this uh, written by a brain surgeon now they didn't know the difference between an eye surgeon and a brain surgeon but neither did I so it didn't make any difference <laughs> and I read this book about this about this brain surgeon and it was uh it was like a vampire just sunk his teeth into my neck and my blood just turned black and I just knew at that moment mm. uh, neurosurgery is what I wanted to do and since that uh, time in year 10 I haven't looked back so I've only ever had one aspiration and that was to do neurosurgery and everything has been geared towards that so matric was just a means to an end med school was just a means to an end until I finally uh, got onto the neurosurgery training program and that's really been the dream since since year 10, so it's about, what, age 15 or so. Amazing, mate, that a young fellow at that age knew what he wanted to do because 9 out of 10 of us don't, <clears throat> you know, so yeah, you really had that purpose and drive at that age. <clears throat> Pardon me, what were your family farming um, up at Osterley? Pretty much nothing. <laughs> yeah, Kangaroos it's, mainly. It's, it's too, too, too <laughs> cold out there, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's like Dad grew a few strawberries and stuff like that, but uh, the possums got as many as any uh, customers did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then he worked on a dairy farm to sort of uh, uh, make ends meet. Um, and then later in life is driving a school bus, which um, is interesting because he is uh, he's from the UK. He's a 10-pound pom. And um, at one point he was studying to be a concert pianist. And then he quit that and started medical school in England. Mm -hmm. And then he quit that and moved to Tasmania to take up farming. So... Um, and that's where he met my mum playing the piano in some church, remote church in the middle of Osterley somewhere. So, <laughs> um, yeah. What was your mum's maiden name? Bannister. Yeah, it's she's a first coming. Yep. Yeah, she's a she's a first fleeter. So her family came over on the first fleet. Gee, as a convict or as a um, uh, as a just a normal resident. Well, she tells the story that it was as a convict, so <laughs> I believe that it probably is, uh, sounds better than just uh, than otherwise. Yeah, unbelievable. So we'll go, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, well, uh, certainly uh, <clears throat> people that know Tasmania, it was obviously um, developed and formed on, on convicts, uh, you know, coming into Port Arthur and so forth, and um, you know, some of the most prominent uh, people within the state are, you know, descendants of convicts, or <laughs> I guess, primarily, so... Uh, interesting bloodline, but uh, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, it has worked out well. Uh, but yes, I guess I have got convict blood, haven't I? Um, <laughs> I never really thought about it like that, but uh, I've got a uh, I've got a bad gene streak in there somewhere. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, probably probably they stole a loaf of bread or something like that. So nothing too <laughs> major, mate. Tell me, um, so with regards to your upbringing in Hobart, you're pretty driven with work. Were you involved with sport or anything as well? 
Yeah, look, uh, Aaron, I actually, prior to all this, really wanted to be a professional cricketer. Like, my, my dream after that was to be an uh, international cricketer, and I just would have given an arm and a leg to do that. Um, and then I ran out of talent at about age 15, so <laughs> yeah. that went by the wayside. And then I really, I've been playing the drums since I was seven. Um, and and the other thing was to be a professional drummer. I, mean, I was really quite serious about that. And Dad was a musician too, so he sort of encouraged that. And I think I sort of ran out of talent for that as well. Like I was good, but I was never going to be good enough to be able to you know, go on a, on, on, on a circuit um, and be paid for it. So my, um, my discovery of neurosurgery really just arrived just in the nick of time when I sort of, just when I ran out of talent of the other two. Who were you playing cricket for in Hobart? It was the Kingborough uh, Cricket Club uh, yep. down by uh, Kingston Beach. Yeah, so we had um, um, Michael. Uh, is it Michael Divinito? Yes. No, his brother. What was his brother's name? Peter. Peter Divinito. That's yep. right. Yep. Yeah. Um, we had Michael Bevan playing for us for a little bit down there, um, and there was another fellow there who was a massive support for me. He was like a second father. Oh, French. Um, I used to call him Mister French, mm-hmm. and uh, he had two sons that played and. Uh, yeah, like I, was, I loved cricket. I absolutely, like I still do now. I still go to bed with a cricket ball in my hand or <laughs> dreaming about. Uh, uh, I had a funny story actually, Aaron. I uh, met my absolute hero in uh, Melbourne at Shane Warne's funeral, uh, Brian Lara, who I absolutely idolised. Really? I met him in the, uh, in the foyer at the Crown Hotel. And uh, I was wearing a Warnie t shirt, and Lara was just filming it on his phone. Jeez. And I looked around, and there was Brian Lara filming me. I could not believe it. It was talk about uh, a moment of uh, meeting the heroes completely unexpectedly. Unbelievable. So you, <laughs> so you went down for his funeral? I did, yeah. Incredible, yeah. mate. Just, just getting off track a bit. What was that like? Uh, it was just, uh, just quite extraordinary. I mean, Always, I mean, Shane Warne was Shane Warne. It's like, you know, he's he's invincible. Like, Shane Warne doesn't die. Mm. So when he did, it was this sort of this confusion beforehand. And um, But the turnout at his funeral was just everybody just felt the same way. He was, you know, he was just a, he was just an ordinary bloke who could do extraordinary things and never forgot, you know, that he that he was an ordinary bloke and he, and he really just sort of resonated with so many uh, people on so many different levels. Mm. And, yeah, he was a genius you must bowler. Have. But I think it... Sorry, go ahead. But I think he was also a genius genius bloke. He had his flaws, no doubt, but um, he really had a way of communicating with people. He didn't want to be a neurosurgeon. That's uh, that's a fair uh, a fair assumption. Uh, he, he took the opposite of you. He, he wanted to be a cricketer, and he was a cricketer, but... Um, <laughs> You, you would probably want to do both, but I uh, just never had the talent. But, um, yeah, no, amazing, amazing story, that guy. And, um, you know, I, I had a long association with cricket as a young fella and uh, I actually did some work with the Tassie cricket team years ago and I sort of got to be amongst it all and amongst all those professional athletes. And it was really, um, um, uh, you know, a blessing to, to actually sort of see uh, at, at, at that level and um, to be able to sort of, you know, be with the guys um, <clears throat> pretty regularly and see how hard they actually trained, or some of them anyway. So some were, <laughs> so, so, some were pretty lazy, mind you. But, um, but yeah, probably a big batsman, probably right. Uh, that was Mark Cosgrove back then. Yeah, so he was he was pretty he was pretty, he was pretty lazy, and that's uh, that's um, he he'd appreciate that. But um, but yeah, I, was, I sort of come in after Bevan and all them, mate. And uh, there were some great times down in Tassie cricket. Uh, you know, back uh, back maybe 10, 15 years ago. And um, yeah, mate, growing up there would have been pretty awesome for you. 
Yeah, I mean, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I grew up sort of, you know, my life sort of paralleled uh, Ricky Ponding. So, you know, I was, uh, Ponding's a bit older than me, but, you know, he certainly was my generation. And it was just fabulous to see this young superstar talent coming through and being Tasmanian. So because he was Tasmanian, you sort of got to see him at close range early on in his career. And I still remember that. It was just fabulous. Yeah, great time. Great time. <clears throat> I was lucky uh, coming in when Tim Payne was sort of emerging and, uh, coming through and sort of did a bit of work with him and um, I was just so impressed with his work ethic mate you know any, anything you asked him to do he'd, he'd try and do it to his best and he'd, uh, he'd, he'd you know he'd just get the most out of himself that's what I really liked about him and and he uh, he really um, you know hit the skids when his finger got damaged and you know nearly retired but obviously he moved through that and um, it was successful but but I watched Tasmanian cricket and I observed, you know, when Tim Coyle came in, just that whole culture change and uh, that environment was it was a you know, great uh, environment to be in. Whereas before that, they really struggled and uh, I just think, um, you know, things have changed. Cricket's a, a totally different game than what it was when we were young fellas too. Yeah, you mentioned Tim Payne. I'd love to have a chat with him because he was, he was a phenomenal talent. Mm-hmm. Um, he just really was uh, ready for the international stage. And he has all that ability in his entire body. Mm. And then he got whacked on the finger. Um, um, I can't remember who the bowl was, that left arm quick, um, who got him in a 2020 match. Dirk Nannis. And that's right, Dirk Nannis. I think. And I just yeah. always wondered how he managed that mentally, like to know that 99%, 99.9% of his bo- physical body had enough talent to be an international cricketer, mm. except for this, you know, distal two-thirds of his finger, which was <laughs> smashed and completely just rubbed that from him. I mean, it's just, it's almost like, you know, Liam Gallagher, you know, in, in the mid-1990s, greatest rock and roll frontman singer of all time, mm. and then he gets this autoimmune disease which robs him of his voice. Yes. Um, and then, you know, like Beethoven, phenomenal uh, composer, and the universe takes his hearing away from him. Yes. And you just wonder how these people de- mentally deal with that, with that with that knowledge, you know. He must, it must have been a mixture of frustration and... Um, I'd, I'd love to speak with him and know how he dealt with it. Certainly, my observation was it was a real emotional roller coaster, but he was self disciplined enough to give himself uh, structure, so that structure supported him through. Yeah, I can imagine that would be key. Mm, just to have the ability to be able to say, okay, well, this is, there's not much I can do. When you're worrying about something, that, that, that worry goes into the injury. When you're sort of like, less tense and your you know your nervous system isn't focused on a problem then i think that problem can actually heal quicker i just think we aggravate things too much by paying too much attention to them but i think once he let go then things started to uh, to improve yeah but it wasn't just meant uh just physical it was mental as well he says it just robbed him a lot of his confidence mm-hmm. and um um, that's that's uh, that highlighted how important that sort of psychological aspect of sport is. I mean, he just didn't trust his hands. Yes, uh, he trusted both his feet and his other hand, just to not the broken hand. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, can can be uh, can be um, you know debilitating in many ways to have something that's getting in your road of your being your best. You know, so um, full credit to him for what he's actually done and been able to move through that. And uh, you know, cricket's evolved so much over the last decade too. Um, you know, it's a full-time professional sport, and um, I've been lucky. I've experienced it in India, and I've uh, you know been up and close with some of the, the guys over there. And um, yeah, it's a different world over there too, mate. So um, you know, if we were young kids now, cricket would have been um, a different experience than what it was when we were young fellows. Yeah, 
Sounds like to me, Aaron, you've been living my dream, mate. Oh, sort of, sort <laughs> of, but uh, I wasn't very good. But uh, but yeah, I got got around it a bit, which was great, and um, um, yeah, moved on from that, and uh, now I'm sort of more into. Well, actually, when I worked at, when I worked with them, I realised that all the work needed to be done above the shoulders, you know. So being able to settle the nerves down, settle the, the, the nervous system down and help people like learn to relax. So that's when I started to teach meditation and yoga and those sorts of things, you know, and sort of help more athletes out with that more than, um, uh, than you know, in the physical side of things. And that's been a real gift and blessing for me, you know, um, I suppose. So we'll keep talking about cricket all day, mate, unless we move on to something else. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you're so, probably right. So, 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 so we... Um, so you would have went to uni in Hobart, come out the other side. What was it like when you actually got your, uh, your honours and you, you were actually a fully-fledged um, neurosurgeon? Were you able to access a role easily or did you take a bit of time off? No, so the way it worked is I ended in med school, which was six years, uh, and then I had to do a, a minimum of three compulsory years in a public hospital working as a, as a doctor in the hospital. Mm. Um, and you have to do at least three years before you can even apply to get on the neurosurgery training program. So there's an official training program, which is run, it's an Australasian College of Surgeon run thing, uh, straight in New Zealand and Singapore. Uh, and they roughly take about six people per year. So roughly between, I mean, in our year, I think 120 applied and out of that 60 get an interview. Mm. And out of that 60, only six get a, a spot. And then you're officially a trainee. And then you've got to spend uh, six years as a trainee moving up the ranks until you sit the final exam at the end of sixth year. Um, and if you pass that, then you're a fully qualified neurosurgeon. So the process from med school, what's well, 12, uh, so it's about 15 years. Jeez, incredible. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, the whole process was just fabulous, uh, Aaron. It, was, it's, it just challenges every part of you. Like uh, it challenges me from a creative point of view, uh, from a physical point of view, from a mental point of view. Um, I got to understand myself um from from doing neurosurgery I mean, it's just fabulous you know discovering new concepts mm. learning new concepts um learning how to do an operation learning how to do a good operation learning how not to do a bad operation uh learning what to do when it goes wrong um dealing with some pretty challenging personalities um dealing with moving around and different sort of ways of doing things and adapting on the run mm. uh it was just a really fabulous experience but um um, would I recommend it to someone? I'm not sure. It's pretty harrowing. <laughs> it, took, it took you a long apprenticeship to get there, that's for sure. So, let, yeah. me, let me share something with you. In uh, 1974, I had a, a large brain tumour taken out of my head. I was only three, and that was at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, and I don't know whether they really knew what they were doing back then because I've got a scar from the base of the neck to the top of my head, um, and they, they sorted it out. But... Um, I haven't really, you know, been too connected to, to that particular episode and, and, and the brain, I suppose, uh, ever since. But um, can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what it would be like to remove something like that from someone's, um, someone's, someone's head? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, from what you've described, I've got a pretty good idea of where the tumour was and exactly what type of tumour it was based on your age there mm. um, and the incision that you've described. Just interestingly, Aaron, 1973, you had that operation before CT scan was invented. Yes. Um, so uh, CT was around about 1975 and then MRI was not till really 1980. 
that came commercially available. So you had a pre-CT operation there, mate. That's um, that's a different time. <laughs> well, I think they, they observed it because I was losing balance and that sort of thing. And uh, we lived in country Victoria and uh, they took me to Melbourne in the hospital and Dr. Yo was the doctor there and he <laughs> seemed to seem to know what was going on and he sorted it out. So I, was, I guess I'm very, very lucky. Yeah, they would have used an X-ray and used a combination of injecting air probably to, to find that. But, um, yeah, so that I'm pretty sure I know what tumour you had and where it was. And um, my toughest case that I've ever done was doing one of those. Um, it was in the later years of my trainings when I was a senior registrar. And this 16-year-old girl presented with the same type of tumour. And I remember looking at the scan. I was pretty senior. I was, I was doing pretty much everything myself. And... Um, um, and I remember looking at the scan and thinking, oh, yeah, it looks pretty straightforward. I'll, I'll get that done. I showed it to my boss and I said, look at this. I'm happy to do it. He goes, yep, no worries. Get that done. And um, uh, at this time, it was less about the person and um, it was more about the pathology for me. I just saw a uh, tumour and I loved anatomy. I loved manipulating anatomy from surgery. And this was really just about biological chess. That's all I was thinking when I saw this. Um, uh, and I remember the operation day itself. I was start about eight, and I thought I'd be done by about midday. Um, and I finished at eleven p.m. that night, and it was the toughest thing I have ever done on my own. Um, it was difficult to get her in a good position because she was quite a large girl. Uh, the tumor was stuck to everything at the back of the brain, which is mm. you know the cerebellum, which is what your balance part of your brain is. It's stuck to the brainstem, which is critical for consciousness and breathing and heart rate. And every time I touch this tumour, it would just hose blood. Like I literally would remove a millimetre of tumour and just blood would just hose out of it. And I'd have to get a cottonoid and put pressure on it and hold it for about five minutes till the bleeding stopped. And this process was so slow. Uh, and that's why it took from 8 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. Um, and at one point, I was so far at the back of this uh, girl's brainstem uh, the top of their brainstem, the light of the microscope was only just reaching the target. I was holding instruments in the tip of my fingers and trying to decide uh, what was normal brainstem and what was tumour. That was just really a harrowing experience. And um, and I got it done. And the only reason I got it done because I watched a mentor of mine do something similar when I was more junior. I worked with him in Hobart, actually, and I would say he's technically the most brilliant guy I've ever worked with. Like, his hands are like those robots that paint cars, just hydraulics, unbelievable. And I studied him for so long and I saw him do a tumour in a kid that took him forever. So I knew it was possible to stand there hour after hour and do it slowly because I'd seen him do it. And I, I remember getting flashbacks of that experience when I was in there doing it myself and it was really quite amazing how much that helped me. Mm. Anyway, because it was a long operation, she went to ICU, intubated that night, and so I didn't really know how she was till the following morning and she was in ICU and I went, did a ward round the following morning in ICU and they still hadn't woken her up and I was a bit stressed. I was like, well, is she okay? Have I injured her brainstem? Is she going to wake up? That was a tough operation. And uh, they decided to get a post-op MRI scan, which you always do to make sure there's no tumour left behind while she was still asleep. And I came back down to ICU later that afternoon and the MRI had just been done and I sat down in front of the computer and all of ICU stood behind me and the patient's still asleep on the ventilator and I've got to scroll through this MRI scan with everybody watching me. I've got no idea if I've left tumour behind, if I've caused a big stroke, because you just don't know. Yes. Um, 
Talk about pressure. <laughs> and I scro scrolled through this uh, MRI scan and it was just pristine and perfect and I could not believe it. Talk about a weight coming off my shoulders and they woke her up and she was she was completely fine. But, uh, yeah, that was the toughest case mm -hmm. I've uh, ever done and I credit my uh, mentor in my early years for getting me through that. How uh, long into your, um, into your uh, role as a neurosurgeon was that? Well, it was when I was still training, so that was in my second last year of training. Jeez, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable, mate. Um, you know, I'd like to explore this more. So, so when you're inside someone's head and, um, um, you know, you get to the location of, of where you see the, 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 the problem, once you've got that out, how is it just like putting a like a, a an engine back together? You sort of got to you know you got to follow a process on what sort of goes first, and then sort of work your way out with regards to you know putting putting the um, the, the the part of the brain back together again. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so let's take a tumor for example. The tumor is either um, on the outside of the brain or it's in the brain, and so once that's been removed to close everything back up again and basically reversing the process that it took to get in there. Yeah. Uh, and it's very regimented. So the first layer is the, is that you close the dura and the dura is the watertight seal around the brain. Um, so you stitch that up and then you've got to stitch it to the skull. And the next thing you put the bone flap, which is a bit of skull that you've removed to get to the tumor. So that goes back on and it gets screwed into place with some titanium screws. And then the uh, muscle over that gets put back in its position and stitched into place. And then finally the scalp gets uh, flapped back on and it gets uh, sutured and stapled into place. So, yeah, it's, it's um, getting in and getting out. It's a bit like a cookbook. It's just a series of steps. Um, all the action happens really once you get in there and you have to remove the tumour. And the challenges are the tumour can bleed like crazy or it can be stuck to really critical parts of the brain. Um, or it can just be very difficult uh, to get to, mm. and that's where the that's where the training comes in. You know, having to think on your feet and problem solve, and um, you know, work out what's the best thing for this patient at that moment in time. Mm, amazing, mate. I um, I'd like to know what are the primary causes of tumours. They did a big study on this recently, and uh, basically, bottom line is bad luck. Um, <laughs> And that's what it comes down to. So, I mean, the most common brain tumour in adults is a metastasis. So uh, lung cancer or breast cancer or bowel cancer that's spread to the brain, that's about 50%. Uh, it's really high. Um, and then there are some malignant tumours. Um, and we just don't know. We don't know why they occur other than to say they're bad luck. We know a bit about the genetics of it. Um, um, but that's about all we know. Um, there's... There's a couple where we can say that, you know, it's caused by something. There's a, there's a form of a meningioma, which is a brain tumour, which we know can be triggered by excessive radiation. So mm -hmm. um, in the olden days when kids used to get a lot of radiotherapy to the head for certain blood, uh, blood uh, cancers, they're presenting now with um, these meningiomas. But outside that, there's very little rhyme or reason. It's just, it's just bad luck. Mm, amazing. Tell me, uh, I'm a little bit worried about uh, Wi-Fi injury and, and radiation in, in, injury with 5G and all those sorts of things. Is that something to be concerned about? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we're concerned about it. Uh, the public are concerned about it. And it has certainly been in sort of mainstream conversations about, you know, uh, phones to the year and what effect they can have on the brain. Mm. Uh, it's never been proven um, is the bottom line. And um, and I and I hope that they're right because uh, for about six years I've had the phone to my ear for about twenty three hours a day taking <laughs> phone calls on calls. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I I hope it's uh, it's all good. Yes, but yeah. it's never been it's never been proven. Yeah, I understand. I know when I'm in a, an environment where I am, uh, you know, uh, around a lot of. Uh, Technology, radiation, uh, you know, Wi-Fi, fluoro lights, all that. I feel, I feel weaker, you know. I, I guess um, so. It must be doing something, but uh, if it's not, um, uh, you know, detrimental, uh, and the body can respond from it, great. But I just think, yeah, we've got to be aware that if uh, if there are problems that uh, that, that can be caused from it, um, you know, just to be be mindful of your um, exposure. Yeah, and look, I think some lessons can be taken from radiotherapy uh, for this. So radiotherapy basically uses high-energy um, uh, X-rays to to kill cancer, and the way it does it, and it's usually what's called fractionated. So rather than just getting one big whack dose of um, radiation, we usually split it up into small doses. So someone may have you know, a series of small doses over six weeks for some brain cancers. Um, but the reason we do that is that the small dose induces a uh, genetic mutation in the tumour, but it also does it in the adjacent normal tissues. Um, but the difference is that the normal tissues can repair that genetic damage caused by the radiotherapy, but the tumour can't. Mm. So we give the dose, small dose, we wait, and during that waiting period, the uh, normal tissues repair that, um, that uh, genetic uh, injury from the radiation, and then we give the second dose. Um, and now the tumour accumulates, you know, two uh, genetic insults um, and the normal tissue again probably gets some sort of genetic injury but then again repairs itself. Mm. Um, so the human body has an incredible capacity to do that and a lot of cancers are uh, uh, statistical anomalies where the body has not been able to, for whatever reason, repair uh, the genetic injury that has accrued, you know, through just through bad luck or, you know, Potentially from some sort of exposure. Mm, incredible. Now, so we need to get sorry, go ahead. give the body credit. We need to give the human body credit. I mean, it uh, it's constantly exposed to radiation. I mean, the atmosphere does a lot in terms of deflecting that uh, that radiation from space. But it's still it's still there, and the body's still repairing itself on a daily basis. So mm. it's a phenomenal bit of kit. Oh, mate, the the, the body is amazing. You know, like I, I just think we're. We're disconnected from our physical body, aren't we? You know, to actually observe what it's telling us, and we're trying to mask things out all the time. But if you can just sort of get out of the road and, and watch and listen and, and understand how you're, you're functioning and the way different things affect your body, I think you can be your own master and your own healer in many ways too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, it's in the sort of my sphere. It, it tends to uh, we tend to very much look at the physical. That's just the natural way with with a surgical career. Uh, we look at physically what's wrong, and then if there's something physical, then surgeons do what surgeons do, which is to cut it out. Yes, <laughs> uh, and that tends to be very much the focus. Get rid of it. Tell me, mate. Um, like over your journey uh, doing these operations, you would have had some negative results. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
there's um, they basically you know, there's a saying that uh, if a surgeon doesn't have any complications, it means they haven't done enough operating. <laughs> so it um, it it happens to everybody. Um, you spend a lot of your training trying to mitigate that risk, um, and that's really important. And, and and training again is just phenomenal for this. So I was. Um, uh, I'll call it lucky. I was lucky that I learnt a lot from watching other people uh, have complications or make mistakes, mm-hmm. and 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 I absorbed it in a way that I almost felt like it was me that made that error. And so during my training, I developed a number of tools uh, to prevent you know these these complications from occurring. And they're really really important. That like the margin is fine between a good outcome and a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. But you know, despite that. Things still happen. Um, a patient can still have a stroke from a brain tumor operation. Um, they can still have an injury from a spinal cord operation. You know, these things do happen. And, you know, sometimes we achieve things inside someone's head that goes really well and we have no idea why it's gone so well because it looks so bad when we're in there. And uh, the next day we in there and it all looks fantastic. It's going really well and the patient wakes up with a bad outcome and wonder, well, how the hell did that happen? Mm. Um, so... Um, yeah, the biology can can catch you out, um, and so one thing I've really loved about the, the surgical career is is learning to recognise or learning to manage risk um, and and strategies to 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 mitigate uh, the chances of, you know, of, of something happening, and that that in itself is a fascinating science. Mm. Oh, for sure, mate, absolutely. Yeah. I um I'd like to know also like ages. If I've obviously worked on young people as well as older. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I you know did uh, about uh, forty months of doing just paediatric surgery, which is everything up to the age of uh, sixteen. So you know that's anything from a neonate up to the age of sixteen. Uh, but the majority of my career has been on people that are seventeen years and older. Mm, unreal. So tell me. Um, how many operations would you average a week? Well, it varies. So when I was training, we would uh, we'd aiming for between two and four hundred cases a year. Mm. Um, and so, uh, in my um, in practice at the moment, it can be anywhere between five or ten a week, depending on on what's happening. Mm. So, so you have a like a practice where you do consult consultation as well as surgery, or how does it work? Yeah, so I, I, I consult for three days a week. Um, so that's sitting down at the desk. Um, the patients come in referred from their GPs um, or from the emergency department and I see them and try and work out what the problem is or work out what the strategy is to manage the problem. And then two days a week I'm in theatre mm. uh, operating. It's a pretty intense um, lifestyle, I would have thought. So so if you're in like theatre for maybe 10 hours at a time and then you sort of go out and then you've got another one to do, how do you manage yourself? Like the, the fatigue levels must be quite huge. Well, uh, the reality is not every operation is 10 hours. So the one I described to you from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., that's that's unusual. Mm. Um, that's a tough case. Mm. Um, but most of the stuff now, I, I would complete the operation in under an hour. Mm. Um, and that's a legacy of getting better and better at your craft. Yes. Um, but also that the majority of things, um, you know, uh, don't take 10 hours to fix. Yes, yeah. I would have thought, yeah, sometimes you'd have problems that... It's hard to keep a timeline on these things. You don't know really what you're up against a lot of the time until you get in there. But um, 
But uh, oh, it's true. Yeah. Patients go. Patients go. How long is my operation going to be, Doc? And I say, well, as long as it takes to get a good <laughs> yeah, outcome. True. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you leave it open. Do you know what? I, I did a role uh, with the Tassie government, looking after um, uh, like um, you know, workplace health primarily. But then I, I also did a lot with the surgeons there, uh, and you know the doctors and so forth at Royal Hobart and. I sort of observed, made a lot of uh, lot of uh, fatigue with these guys. You know, they weren't getting a lot of support, and a lot of them were working long hours and so forth too. And you know, I wanted to try and put interventions in place so they could manage themselves better. Um, but uh, the staff shortages were so so rife back there; they were they were working, you know, really long hours consistently. Yeah, um, that's uh, fantastic that you were doing that. From from our perspective. The fatigue wasn't necessarily in theatre. Like for most of us, we, you know, for me, for my happy place is under the microscope. So once the microscope's wheeled into place, I'm mm. just in my happy spot. Yes. Um, and I can go on for hours and not even blink an eyelid and be very, very happy about that. Mm. Um, the fatigue for most of us happens outside the operating room. And the biggest one is the on-call um, because what that does is disrupt your sleep. Yes. Uh, and that's the big one. Um, you constantly woke up in the middle of the night when you're training and multiple times and often you have to go into the hospital uh, and that just ruins you the following day. Um, and then it has a, you know, week after week, it's very insidious. It just creeps up on you and slowly, you know, your, your physical health starts to deteriorate and certainly your mental health starts to deteriorate as you accumulate this sort of, you know, lack of sleep, you know, week in, week out, mm. um, as well as maintaining all your normal duties during the day on the ward. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the on-call. In fact, the safe working hours recently came into, um, into, the, uh, into the light when a, when, a guy, when a plastic surgeon in Perth crashed his car on the way home uh, one night after being on-call and had a, um, an extra drill, so a bleed on the brain and required surgery. But it, it's sad that it takes a sentinel event like that for sometimes of action to to, to to take place. But the old guys, like the, the old professors, they go, well, back in my day, of we course. lived and breathed the, the hospital life, so you should do the same thing. That's yeah. the only way you can become a great surgeon. So, you know, there's 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 two sides to every uh, to every coin. Mate, it's it's common in any industry. You know, things have probably improved uh, in the industrial sense where there, there's interventions in place to avoid those things. But... You know, it always concerned me, like people in professional level uh, roles like yourself, you know, how you were, you, were, you were being supported because your body can only take so much if you're sort of, uh, you know, operating for a long period of time. Then you've got to jump in the car. It's like you're, 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 you're drunk, you know, primarily, but probably four times as, as bad. And, um, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. Not, yeah. Not, that, not that's been... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's just been shown um, that um, being tired is the equivalent of, um, of being drunk when driving the car, mm. um, so but it's uh, it's 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 a difficult problem because the hospital, like a neurosurgery ward on the hospital, needs staff to run it. You need to have the registrars on the ground who are running that department, um, and they need to be on call. Um, and so they are going to be spending nights where they're woken up constantly uh, to deal with stuff, and then have to back up uh, the the following day. It's just it's an unavoidable part of the job um mm. unless you i guess double the staff or something like that but so many permutations have been tried you know to try and address this problem you know just doing a week of nights or getting more registrars on the service or you know different permutations are tried to try and address this problem but at the end of the day i think you know for the foreseeable future registrars will suffer
Yes, yeah, there's, there's yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to manage, isn't it? I guess at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, you know what you go, you're going to get. Um, I suppose in your case, it's a little bit um, uh, different because you can predict, but for the average uh, ED person or someone that's working in the clinical, um, you know, realm, it, it can be hard because you, you just don't know what's going to come up. Yeah, exactly right. And um, I mean, I used to work uh, both public and in the private sector. And um, my contract came up for renewal in the public and I decided not to renew it. And the reason I did that uh, was to give myself time for my own physical and mental uh, well-being. Yeah. Um, it was a big decision because no decision in life is ever 100% right or 100% wrong. There's always a combination of good and bad. And I feel like you just need to choose a decision where the balance of good and bad you know, is favourable for you. Yes. So the public sector is fantastic. The cases that come through are really, really interesting. Working with, uh, with registrars and the educational side of that is really, really fantastic. But the downside is uh, the, you know, the interrogation after hours and, and being woken up um, in the middle of the night. And you know, I, I went to a meeting once, well, recently, last couple of years, with all the head honchos in Brisbane, the neurosurgeons, I looked around the room, Aaron, and realised I aspired to be like none of them. Yes. <laughs> they're all they're all fat and unhappy. So what I mean is physically, you know, uh, unwell and mentally unwell. Now that's a general sweeping statement, but that was the general vibe of a lot of those people sitting in that room. And that's that you know. So it's very clear about where that path would lead me if I was to continue down that. So I made a, you know, what was a very big decision for me at the time to just concentrate on one aspect of my career and get my um, nights back and concentrate on my mental and physical health and I haven't looked back. It's been one of the best decisions I've made, I think. You need to be proud of yourself, mate. And um, uh, certainly my, my observation for working in that uh, space was people that were making decisions at, uh, at the high level in the health department were some of the unhealthiest people that I've ever met, you know, so... How can they be guiding the health of the of the uh, of the, the the state from a compassionate level? Um, you know, it's all done around our know, business approach, I guess, in, in many ways. But um, but yeah, you know, I would like to see people that are that are working in the system, uh, particularly those like yourselves that are in a in a in a role where you're you're caring for others, that you've actually got your own shit together. I think it's really really important. Yeah, it's uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, you see, I. You know, there are some really, really overweight doctors and some really miserable doctors. I mean, it's like, you know, hiring a, a financial broker that's been to jail or is bankrupt or, you know, a tax accountant that's been to jail for tax fraud. It's yes. like it's exactly the same concept. Yeah. You know, you've got to go and see a doctor for help who's uh, pretty much dying themselves. It's just uh, it's completely incongruent. Um uh, with what it should be, but uh, as you say, you know, medicine these days is very, very much heavily um, impregnated with a sort of a business sort of uh, um, theme approach. Yeah, um, I agree. and unfortunately, that's you know the bottom lines where a lot of uh, you know decisions are ultimately aimed towards. Yes, that's true. You know, professionals. Uh, I see smart kids going through uni and they come out the other side and they go into life. Uh, you know, in a professional realm, uh, maybe not to be the, the level of a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, but all of a sudden you're on this sort of hamster wheel and unless you're, you're able to arrest it like you did, you can end up exactly like those people and you think that happiness comes from 
the financial um, you know rewards, but really at the end of the day, you're missing out on a hell of a lot of your life, and your life can be shortened because you're not actually engaged with yourself. Would you agree? I agree, a hundred percent. I agree, absolutely, a hundred percent. There are plenty of examples. Uh, I mean, wives of neurosurgeons have told me that uh, their kids have grown up without knowing. Uh, their father um, that's uh, that's a really sort of standard thing and they have you know sort of poorly developed relationships with their kids um, um, uh, and look you know that that hamster wheel we call it the golden handcuffs you know surgeons they started making some money and so they they spend more and therefore they've got to make more and then they spend more and then they've got to make more mm. and there's uh, there's no end to it and um they get to 65 and they're completely shot through. Yes, that's right. Oh, absolutely, mate. I've, I've seen it a lot and uh, continue to see it to this day. And, you know, I, I hope conversations like this can really um, help people understand that, um, that, that, that really the happiness that comes from, you know, material uh, and also from, um, from you know lots of money is only impermanent it's, it's temporary you know there's no point being the richest man in the cemetery at the end of the day so you know you've got to have that balance and you know getting back to to, to your own uh situation as i said i really congratulate you for that because you know for you to be able to observe it and to think well yeah maybe i can earn an extra 100 100 grand a year if i work harder for you to say no to to invest that into your well-being you know not only you benefit but everyone benefits from that yeah, um, it is a difficult decision. You've got to make it yourself. And then, you know, there's always the egotistical side of it as well. So um, you're always comparing yourself to other people. And if you're not doing such and such, then you feel inferior. So um, and if you say, I'm going to not going to do something, I'm going to concentrate on my own physical or mental health, you're sort of viewed as, as weak in a way, mm. which is kind of ironic because it's actually making you stronger. They're the weak ones for, you know, for, for tearing their mental and physical health apart, mm. doing what they're doing. Um but uh, yeah, it's um, it's one thing to say what's important in your life. It's another thing to act on it, isn't it? Yes, agree. That's true, mate. That's courage in itself, and you've got to make a stand and uh, and say, well, look, you know, I I, um, I can see where I'm heading here. Uh, I know what the consequences could possibly be, and be able to be true to that rather than just sort of you know turn a blind eye. And that's where a lot of us make mistakes, you know, and, and our mental health fails, and you know everything else may fail around that, you know. So to be able to to make those decisions and, and stick to them, I think is, um, you know, is a skill and a gift, but it's something that we need to honour because getting back to what the body's teaching us, it's smarter than us. You know, if you're observing something in your body, don't push it aside, you know, try and do something that uh, that's proactive rather than reactive. I think that's really important, Alex. And, you know, um, how old are you now? Like in your 40s yet or? Just. Just. Don't remind me. <laughs> oh, that's not a bad thing. 40s and you like 60, so... So, so, okay. so, sorry, 40 is a new 20, I should say. So, um, okay. so yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, don't say the new 50, you know, you've nah. got it wrong there, mate. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah, my, my best year... 40 is the new 50. 40, 40 to 44 was pretty awesome for me physically, for what I, what I could I could do, and, you know, there's still plenty of great stuff ahead of you. So, what do you want to do with your career? You want to keep working in this space um, uh, for the next 20 years? What, what sort of plans do you have as far as moving forward? Well, Aaron, I do have plans, um, and uh, uh, really moving forward, the thing that I aspire to is moving into a uh, public education space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I went into neurosurgery because I love the technical side of surgery, but I also love uh, the anatomy 
uh, of the brain. Like, absolutely love it. Um, and um, so a, a real dream of... I don't know if you know Professor Brian Cox at all. You know, the physics guy? I've heard the name, yep, yep. Yeah. So basically, he travels around the world doing live sh- uh, shows uh, uh, presenting you know, physics uh, to the mainstream. Um, so uh, insert... Uh, brain, and that's exactly what my aspiration is long-term, mm-hmm. um, um, to do, you know, live events uh, talking about the human brain um, uh, in a sort of edutainment sort of sense, I guess. But uh, that's really um, that's really sort of my aspiration moving forward. And it's not different to what I'm doing now. I mean, I got into neurosurgery because I wanted to be challenged creatively. I wanted uh, something that uh, I was... Uh, passionate about and um, something that would uh, really, really challenge me. So this moving forward is just exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, um, so you just yeah. uh, you're hitting more critical mass then, aren't you? And you're able to sort of share that wisdom and maybe inspire someone like that guy did when you were in year ten. You know, those conversations can really can really transform people's lives. Do you know what I was, I was going to ask you, Alex, like with regards to the brain, what I know you're not a psychologist or, or anyone that looks after the physical body, but what are some of the things that, that keep the brain healthy? Yeah, we have this uh, discussion a lot, but from, a, from my perspective, uh, Aaron, what's really interesting, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but from my perspective, I spend uh, less time talking about how to improve uh, brain health uh, and increasing the power of your brain or your ability to do X, Y, and Z. And I look and spend more of my time uh, talking about how not to stuff it up in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, so I, 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 I think less about, you know, you know improving your um, you know, the capacity of, of your brain and more about how not to ruin it in the first place. Yeah. And I say that from a very, from a very sort of uh, a physical sense. Um, I see, you know, the horrific thing for us is seeing an 18-year-old kid come into hospital uh, with a brain injury. Mm. Um, and it's just the most shocking experience uh, you can imagine. You walk into the room, the kid is, uh, you know, his brain is ruined, he can't talk, he can't move half his side of his body, and you look around on the wall and you see the photos of this guy before the accident. There he is smiling with his mum and dad at graduation. Mm. There's a photo of him with his mates at a barbecue or at the pub or the beach or whatever. Mm. You know, when his brain uh, was normal, it was young and had all the, you know, the potential in the world, and now all that potential has been completely robbed, mm. uh, all because he was driving too fast or he was drink driving or whatever it might be. Yes. Um, and for me, that feels like the battle that I want to fight is, you know, preventing them from stuffing up in the first place. Yes. Um, same with me, mate. But, yeah, I agree. And prehabilitation beats rehabilitation. And, you know, I, 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 I am certainly hearing you. It's bringing back some flashbacks, you know, for, for me, for, for other experiences with not myself but with others. But, but you know, it's my, my, my um, purpose as well to be able to help people avoid the mental health issues by doing things which can keep them mentally well, you know, um, above the shoulders and um, I, I just think that that's our duty to be able to help others do that rather than work in the reactive um, way that we work about it now, wait till someone's got something wrong before you actually 
give them an intervention, why not sort of be proactive and do things which can help you now and, um, you know, exactly what you're saying, avoid those things where, you know, a young guy's going to go and do something silly like that. You you would have a really powerful, um, uh, you know, uh, presentation and opportunity to be able to train and, and educate young people because of what you've experienced, you know, because what you've, you've observed will certainly hit home with a lot of a lot of people before they um, before they go and make those uh, decisions, which could be detrimental. Yeah, I know. I I hear exactly what you're saying there, Aaron, in terms of the prevention. Mm. And I'll have to say, I'd never really thought much about uh, preventing mental health. Like I think about preventing a brain injury physically, uh, preventing people having a psychological injury to their brain. I mean, that's that's that's. Um, that's an interesting sort of thought um, from my side of the fence. Mm. Um, how do you go about doing that? Well, I've been really lucky um, with regards to uh, some of my uh, education, which has probably been more through the west, uh, sorry, the eastern um, uh, system. So, just things that you can do to be able to, you know, uh, keep your, you know, pituitary and your pineal gland working well. Um, Keep your, you know, your, the blood flow uh, between both hemispheres working well. Um, more create more of a neutral mind, so you're not as, uh, you know, uh, in the past or future or tense or anxious. Um, uh, you know, these sorts of things which can keep things running smoothly. Um, I think have been something for me personally, which has been able to give me. Uh, let's use the word resilient. Uh, it's, it's probably more about having. Um, uh, just just uh, an armour, uh, I suppose, uh, around you which can protect um, you from those psychological injuries possibly, you know. So when you, when you do have something that diverts you to be able to sort of see for what it is and, and allow it to move it on uh, through meditation rather than being stuck in a, you know, a traumatic episode or a, an event, um, you know, to be able to sort of see a situation for what it is and then be able to, to move through it, I, I suppose, is some of what um, the philosophy has taught me as an individual and, and many others. But, um, but yeah, I, I think in Western society we are, we are really reactive in many ways. You know, we don't sort of do much to, to, to um, you know, build our capacity and, uh, and have our... Um, uh, you know, our, our, our armour on in many ways to, pr- to protect ourselves physically and mentally. You know, it's okay to be physically physically fit and all that, um, you know, but uh, eventually if you're not looking after yourself above the shoulders, then you can um, find that uh, you can be susceptible some, to some, you know, um, some, some, some imbalances. And I just think if you can keep the brain healthy by balancing those hemispheres and, and doing things which, uh, you know, keep it... Uh, activated and uh and and also switching off um before you know bed at night i think is really uh, important to be able to sort of settle the nervous system down so i i have what's called bookends so you know a really strong meditation practice in the morning and a strong meditation practice at night which just helps me you know get back into balance again and i i I think you know a lot of people in there well most most cultures um, in, in Eastern society you don't really in, enforce that. You know, for you to be able to manage your mental health by uh, by having that self connection, I think is um, is really key, particularly in the stimulated world that we're in now. Yeah, well, that's um, that's really interesting. Um, I think it's absolutely fabulous that uh, you you're, you're out there and uh, you're 
being proactive in in promoting that. I think even just said the 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 conversation in the public space is um, probably very powerful just in its own and a call that people know that something like that is out there and uh, gives them something to to go to. Mm, mm. No, that's true. I, I agree, mate. Because it that doesn't it make sense to be able to um, just just to find that harmony within yourself. You know, if I if I go and I, I speak to a, an organisation or I've been to prisons and talked to guys which have you know been highly traumatised about what is it that makes them feel calm and usually for a guy it's fishing or something like that. You know, so I give them tools so they can actually find that level of calmness. Uh, every day you know, if that guy in Perth that um, the plastic surgeon that pranked the car if he had have had a, an opportunity to de-escalate before he drove home and just settled himself down the sleep the sleep obviously was a big thing but if he could just give himself some time uh, to, to, to get reconnected then that accident mightn't have happened and this is something I was really keen to be able to do with um, those people at Royal Hobart to be able to give them skills and tools and solutions on how they can proactively, um, you know, just just come back through the gears, you know. Um, and I think it's important for people at, at your level to, to, to do this sort of self-maintenance because, um, you know, it's going to help the mental health um, of each individual, but obviously uh, it's going to help, um, you know, uh, your performance uh, when you when you when you're working with people or um, you know you're you're in a in a state where you are um, uh, you know quite challenged um, if you're able to sort of keep your nervous system nice and balanced I think it's key it was interesting what you said before about you know when you're focused and you're on when you're under the microscope you know sort of um, you know that that's that's when your 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 brain's you know really engaged but just when you come out of that episode like to be able to sort of have some time on your own just to settle things down. I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, uh, it's a real sort of, uh, I've, you know, Aaron, I've actually never meditated. Um, I've never, ever done it. I've, um, But in terms of uh, you know, under the microscope, an hour can feel like five minutes, and when I'm out of the microscope, five minutes can feel like an hour. Mm. Um but it's a, it's a completely different uh, space-time experience uh, when you're in your happy places as opposed to not being in the happy place. Yes. Um, but the kick-on effects are huge. I mean, a good day in theatre changes me at home, uh, no question about that. Um, a difficult case or a stressful case or a bra- we have brains in a blender, mm. um, there's lots of knock-on effects uh, with that. Um, I remember when I used to have a – when I was training, if I had a, a, I knew I had a difficult case coming up. I used to sit in the theatre – I actually used to stand in the uh, sorry in the change room, and uh, just take uh, thirty deep breaths with my eyes closed, and just having my hands nice and still. And I remember having to just ignore the fact that someone was probably going to come in during those thirty breaths and look at me and wonder what the hell I was doing, <laughs> um, and just drop it all and drop all the fear and just sort of like you know, breathe deep, stimulate the vagus nerve, mm. um, and without fail that helped me. Yes, oh, I mean no, no. it's quite. Quite physiological. I mean, it's, it's vagus nerve activation, but it uh, there was it was a noticeable di- uh, difference um, when when I did that. It just sort of slowed the cogs spinning in my mind. It mm-hmm. uh, just got rid of a lot of sympathetic tone, and uh, my performance was 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 definitely noticeably more efficient. Yes, isn't it funny in West society if we saw someone doing that, we wouldn't recognise it, and we probably think that was stupid. But, uh, but, 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 but primarily, if the more people we can actually uh, help understand and educate around this sort of stuff, then the more of a, 
a balanced society I, I think will be you know where you can see someone when they're when they're when they're self-regulating it's it's really important you've got to look at an animal out there when when a kangaroo has trauma they, they shake it off and they move on you know we, we 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 take on that trauma and a lot of a lot of us we just continue to, to carry that with us you know but if you can release that and, and just let it go I think it's really important yeah, but, but knowing how to let it go, that's the trick. I feel like that's half the trick. That's a difficult thing to do. Yes, yeah. Yeah, my, my teacher gave me a thousand-day practice um, to do every day, and, um, you know, I did that every day, and I just learnt, I just learnt what this can actually do um, for, for me to be able to, 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 to just come back through the gears. But, but knowing the cortisol's high, how to reduce that, you know, come back to a nice balanced state again, and... Um, um, I reckon, uh, you know, it takes time to develop a practice. Uh, you've got to you've got to put time into yourself and make time for yourself. And this is where I'd like to see employers uh, actually starting to do this sort of stuff because the return is is significant. You know, um, uh, for your for your mental health. Um, you know, you, you can't be on all the time and you're, you're sympathetic, um, stimulated. You know, you've got to be able to find that that balance again and just be able to. To understand what's going on inside yourself for a man, I think, is really important. Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a foreign concept. And so, um, you know, education is key for this, isn't it? It's getting that sort of idea out in the, in the public space and getting people talking about it and recognising the, the, uh, the strategies that can be put into place to address exactly that. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm a neurosurgeon and a lot of those strategies are even foreign to me, So, which is why I think it's brilliant you doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um. Oh, thanks. But um, you know, it's it's hard to. If you're a young boy and you had a, a decision to make at year twelve, whether you're going to be a brain surgeon on a lot of money or be a meditation teacher not getting much money, um, then then uh, you know certainly a lot of them would go the other way if they they could do it. But but yeah, I just think there's a real need um, now uh, more than ever to be able to help people um, you know out in this space you know and. To be able to use every part of us optimally, um, I think, is key, and um, you know, to be able to help each other um, out with that. Um, the mental health space, is, as I mentioned, is really reactive. You know, I'd like to see that flipped around so it's proactive. You know, so we're not having episodes of um, you know suicide and those sorts of things which are going on. And I reckon it probably happens in in your industry too. You know, you, know, you see doctors that are stressed out that have done it. I've seen it before when I was sort of in that space, you know, uh, people in professional realms that were just cooked and they, they took their lives and um, it happens across all, um, all ages and demographics. It doesn't really discriminate, but I just think if we can turn things around so people can actually start to do exactly what you did, um, you know, walk away from, from the, the breadcrumbs to be able to sort of take care of yourself and I think we can start to make some changes. Yeah, yeah, I um, I think it's exactly right. I, I think you um, you talked about you know, um, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, you're a neurosurgeon, you you've got a good wage, you know, that's that's different. Like you're always going to be comfortable, so you're, it's not the same story where you know we we have to work harder and stuff because we've got to pay the bills and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but uh, look, I know some wealthy neurosurgeons, I'm not one of them by the way, but I do know <laughs> some wealthy neurosurgeons yeah. and they're the most miserable people you've ever met in your life. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're on right. to their third marriage, their kids hate them. Yes. Um, like I know one, for example, who's just uh, started a new relationship 
um, left his wife, um, his kids won't talk to him, um, and all he wants to do is try and earn a million dollars a year to to build up enough for retirement. I mean, that's the most hopelessly toxic and useless <laughs> use of time on planet Earth. Um, Absolutely. I've, I've not seen a, you know, money-making neurosurgeon um, 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 uh, happy and content. It makes them look rich. That's very different to how they're actually feeling. Yes, absolutely. And people will see a neurosurgeon driving away in the Maserati think, oh, geez, that must be good, mm. and drive up to his mansion and stuff and think, geez, that must be nice. Mm. Um, but that's uh, that's not a reflection of how that neurosurgeon is thinking in their head. So, yeah. I mean, I only know neurosurgeons, I don't know business people, but, you know, for the wealthy ones I've seen, um, you know, without exception, uh, it has not uh, improved their mental state. Yep. Well said, mate. Really good to hear from someone like you and... Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's ego primarily. Like, you know, leave your wife, get another one, upgrade your Ferrari, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you're really not dealing with the core issue of um, paying attention to yourself, you know. And why go through life and, as I said, be the richest man in the cemetery or um, or just be miserable and then and then sort of decide or realise in the last uh, the last moments of your life that you've actually missed out on a hell of a lot because you've been so so disconnected. I think it's it's crazy. Correct. Yeah, 100% agree. Mate, um, agree more. mindful of your time and uh, really grateful for the chat. We can uh, we can keep going a lot longer. We'll have another one of these down the track too, mind you. But if anyone wants to have a look at the work, what, what's your website again? Just uh, dralexkaufman.com.au. How do you spell your surname again? K-O-E-F-F-R-E-M-A-N. And how often do you have to explain that to people? Every single time. It <laughs> yeah, rolls off right. the tongue. <laughs> yeah, and mine's short, and I've got to explain, is that with a C or a, a T or that sort of thing? It's, it's anyway, I hope I, they'll get it right one day, but <laughs> see what happens. Uh, my um, my mum used to say F for Freddie because she had to explain how to spell Kaufman, and so I heard her say it when I was a kid, and now I'm just continuing the same uh, the same uh, uh, the same thing, yeah, K-O-E-F for Freddie, M-A-N. <laughs> yeah. Are your parents still alive? Are they in Tassie still? Yeah, they're still in uh, still in Tassie. Um, Dad's still dreaming big of taking over the world. Uh, <laughs> Mum's quite happy cooking, and uh, yeah, Dad's given that uh, gene to me. It's the, the the dream big, everything's possible. Mm. Uh, never take no for an answer. I definitely got that from him, and he's uh, he's seventy five and still thinks he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna write the world's greatest concerto and uh, the world's <laughs> most impressive. Uh, Book of philosophy, so That's we'll good. see how he goes. Keep him, keep him going there, mate. Because as long as he's got dreams and aspirations, he'll be okay. So, well, he's he's intellectually and emotionally happy. I think that's the key thing. Mm, absolutely. What part of Hobart are they? Uh, they're just in Kingston. Beautiful. Yep. And, uh, yeah. and and you'd be happy to know that their their place is probably worth four times more than what it was a few years ago. So. Um, yeah. they, don't, they rent. They don't even own their place. They just rent it. Unbelievable. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly uh, their yeah. rents would have gone up, so you might have to help them out. I do everything that I can. Yeah, they uh, they mean the world to me, and um, Dad both frustrates the hell out of me and inspires me. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I understand, mate. Well, uh, my dad is in a nursing home with dementia, and you know, and I certainly am aware of that, and you know, making sure that I do things so I don't. Uh, don't have to take that same path, you know, and um, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a shame, but certainly it happens. And you know, while you've got your father the way he is, you know, 
treasure him and uh, and be around him as much as you can to uh, you know to enjoy the rest of his time here because it's it's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Completely agree. Appreciate it, mates, and uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, there'll be lots of people listening to this. Hope they share it around, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have another chat again soon, Alex. So I really appreciate your time. No, Aaron, the uh, the the pleasure is mine, mate. Thanks so much for the uh, invitation and the stimulating conversation.